Well, there's a French social scientist named René Girard who came up with a theory for why we desire things the way that we do. He called it mimetic desire. You're not required to remember that. Mimetic desire. Just think of the word imitation. That's where that's buried in that word mimetic. That, that we desire through imitation. So there's you, the person who is desiring. There's the object, the thing that you desire. And then there's a model. A model who has that thing or also desires that thing. So the other people have called it triangular desire. So you desire a thing, an object. Somebody else either has that thing or also desires that thing. You can imagine a room full of toy animals and a child in the middle happily playing with a black horse. The person, the object. A second child enters the room and what toy, of all the toys that are in the room, what toy does that second child want to play with? The black horse. Well, why? Because the first child is already happily playing with it. It's not just the toy that's desirable for the second child. It's that the first child made that toy desirable by desiring it first. Works the same way for the first child as well, because before that second child entered the room, that first child could have happily put down the black horse and picked up the brown cow to play with it. But now, she won't. Why? Because somebody else also desires it. The second child has come in so, and has uh, confirmed for the first child that the black horse really is the best uh, toy to be playing with. That second child confirmed and reinforced that that's the best toy to have. Likewise, it's not the toy itself that's desirable, Gerard argues, but it's the fact that the second child desires it that makes her want to clutch onto it even tighter. And so you have a tug of war of desire experienced by every parent on the face of the earth. I'm indebted to, I'm not regularly reading French social scientists, I'm indebted to a seminary professor named Joe Rigney who talks about this in a, in a book, and he calls it triangular desire, where the one, there's the one who desires the thing that's to be desired, and somebody else who has it or also desires it, and he writes this. He says, it's not only found in the heart of toddlers, quote, it explains why two roommates will wreck a long friendship competing for the attention of the same girl. It explains why two coworkers will destroy a long partnership over a big client. It explains advertising, branding, and the willingness of people to pretend to enjoy things that they hate because somebody that they admire enjoys it. It explains why a king, here he's alluding to King Saul, it explains why a king who craves the esteem of his people would try to pin a young hero to the wall because he heard some women sing a song. Triangular desire, Rigney continues, is a corrupted form of imitation in which we move from wanting to be like our model to then competing with our model to seeking to replace our model. It's not that we merely want what the model has, we now want to be the model. Gerard's theories don't explain everything that we might say about our desires, but you see the helpful observations that he brings up, I hope. The second child doesn't mainly want the toy. She wants the experience of joy that that toy is bringing the first child. 
If the first kid gave, gave up the black horse and began to play with the brown cow, that second child would now crave the brown cow. This is why the covetous are so unhappy. The harder we try to compete, the more we lust for the happiness and possessions of other people, the more it eludes us. Church, maybe you can sense it, but we have a tall task in front of us this morning. If you're like me, all of that that I just explained is, is a little bit jarring. Not conceptually confusing, right? I think I get it. I think I get mimetic desire. I get triangular desire. I see what Gerard is talking about. I see that in the experiences of my family and in my own life. I think conceptually I understand what's going on. But it's disorienting because the realization sets in on us of just how tricky this is. When we talk about coveting or desire, the realization sets in on us of just how unavoidable this seems to be in everyday life. How do we overcome this? How can we escape this? How do you intentionally fight against covetousness in your own heart and in your own life? Well, friends, that's what I want us to consider this morning. If you're new here with us, we're uh, on the last sermon of a series in the Ten Commandments, and the Tenth Commandment deals with covetousness. And so we are, uh, find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 this morning with the Tenth Commandment. And here's what I want to argue from our text. It's this, that the joyful Christian life is found not in the things we possess, but in the God who possesses us. The joyful Christian life is not found in the things that we possess, but in the God who possesses us, the God who owns us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Again, if you've been here through the series, you know that all of our sermons uh, follow the same three-point outline. The, the, uh, because the Ten Commandments are always doing, they're, they're doing three things all at once. When we see a command from God in his word, it is revealing something about who God is. Only a God who is like this or that would command that thing. It's revealing his character. It's showing us what, who God is and what he's like. The second thing it's doing is, is that each commandment is revealing something in us. God has to command it for a reason. He, he brings it up because we're so prone to sin in certain ways. So it's revelation, it's confrontation, and then it's instruction. There is instruction here for us. We take God's commands and say, well, there's something for us to do here, something for us to attend to. And for that reason, our three-point outline is what kind of a God would command this? What kind of a people would need this commanded? And then how do we obey the command? Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. There's pew Bibles there in front of you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Exodus 20, verse 17. Before we get into that three-part outline that I just uh, walked through, I, I do want to just consider a few things in our text here. This 10th command deals with covetousness. It spells out a number of areas in which the Israelites would have been tempted to covet. I do think it's interesting. Uh, Jen Wilkin, I, I mentioned her book, uh, uh, Ten Words to Live By. She points this out that, that uh, they don't even have all these things that are being commanded right now. How wise of God to give them this command about their ox and their donkey and their houses and all this kind of stuff as Israel was still on the run and kind of making their way back to the promised land. God knows what we are going to struggle with it before we even struggle. And so if you hear this sermon, you're like, I don't really, I don't really have uh, that struggle. I think, it's, I think we're all going to see how we do struggle. But just God in his wisdom gives this to us. 
even maybe before we struggle in certain ways. And so God is commanding them that, that they are going to have some struggles around this area of, of covetousness. And so he says, don't covet your, your, your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's spouse. Don't cover your neighbor's servants. Don't cover your neighbor's animals. And then just for good measure, he says, anything. Just kind of a catch-all. Don't cover anything. Covet anything that is your neighbor's. When we covet, we desire something strongly. We desire something strongly, but it's tricky because to desire is not necessarily a bad thing. There are many things that we do desire and many things that we should desire. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that's used here for the word desire, or that, that's used here in Exodus 20 verse 17 for the word covet is translated elsewhere as desire, even good desires. Consider this, Exodus, or, uh, Psalm 19 for example, uh, Psalm 19, the psalmist says this, God's rules are sweeter than honey and are to be desired. Same word for covet. God's rules are sweeter than honey and are to be desired more than gold. Psalm 19, verse 10. Same word. The way that we know if it's a good desire or bad coveting is by the context. It's, it's on the, 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 the object that is being desired in the heart of the desirer or the coveter. So to covet is to, to greedily or jealously desire something that belongs to someone else. The problem isn't desire itself, but desiring the wrong things in the wrong ways. I, I'm guilty of coveting when I don't just admire what you have, but I lack the ability to be sincerely grateful for the fact that you have it, and instead I want it for myself. That's what coveting is. Coveting, in a word, is desire gone awry. Coveting. Desire gone awry. So with a little bit of that background and orienting us to the, to the idea of coveting, with a little bit of, of definition there, let's look at the three questions that we want to ask and answer this morning. Number one, what kind of God would give this command? What kind of God would give this command? I, I want to offer two words for you to consider. The word presence and the word abundance. Presence and abundance. So number one, first, presence. He is a God who never leaves us. So the God who would command such a thing of us to not covet other people's stuff is a God who himself says, I am a God who is there with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that might sound like an odd connection to make with the topic of coveting, but it, it's exactly the, uh, the, the connection that scripture makes. The, the verse on the front of your uh, service guide this morning is Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Maybe you read that on your way in. Hebrews 13 verse 5, listen to this, keep your life Free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I think we get that the instruction to keep your life free from the love of money is intuitive, even if it's hard for us. Okay, I get that. We should keep our life free from the love of money. Uh, similarly, the same thing could be uh, said for contentment. I understand, okay, we need to be content with what we have. I understand that. But then the author gives the reason for that. The author of Hebrews gives the reason. So, so keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Here's the reason he gives that we're able to do that is this. Because you can be content and not fall into the trap of the love of money because this reason God has promised never to leave you. God has promised never to forsake you. The God who commands this is a God who we can say is, is aware, is available, and is attentive. He's aware, he's available, he's attentive. I think 
that, that unpacks a little bit of what it means that we can uh, uh, avoid this and obey this commandment by knowing that we have a God who is near to us. He's a God who is aware. And so we don't have to worry in our desiring of things or wanting if we, uh, wondering if we have enough or we have really the true abundant life because God is that we know he's there. He's never left us. He, he knows where you are, how you are, what you desire, what's in your heart, what would be good for you. He knows all of those things. He is aware of all of that. And so he gives the antidote for this. He says, I, you don't have to do that because I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And if everything that the Bible says about me is true, you can trust me that I know where you are. I'm aware of what's going on in your life. He's aware. He's available. He, he hasn't gone missing. It'd be one thing if he were aware of it, but then when you go to ask him for something, or you go to pursue him or to seek him, he, he, he's off somewhere. Like, like, like the prophets of Baal, maybe uh, that... that uh, in the Old Testament, maybe they're gone, maybe they're in the bathroom, maybe they're not paying attention, maybe they're on a vacation. God doesn't do that. God is both aware and he's available. He hasn't gone missing when you're in need. He's not nowhere to be found. He says, no, I would never leave you nor forsake you. He's aware, he's available, he's attentive. He doesn't disown or reject or abandon his people. So he says, I would never forsake you. I'm, I'm always present, I would never forsake you. He, he, it's not that he's with you, but he's kind of apathetic and disengaged to your plight. That would be to forsake you. But he says, I won't do that. He's not far off, but he's near. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So God, when he says, don't, don't, church, don't covet other people's things. What kind of a God would ask that? Well, only a God who is with you and who will never leave you or forsake you who knows what you need and can provide what you need. Which leads us to our second word, abundance. So not just presence, but abundance. He is a God who richly supplies. Our God knows where true life is to be found, and he knows we will look in the wrong place for it. <laughs> That's why he gives these commands. We tend to locate pleasure in paths of pain. And God knows that, and, and he, so he, he supplies all that we need. He gives us abundance. He commands us not to covet our neighbor's stuff, because he is a God who richly gives us everything that is needful. There's an amazing picture of this in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read this. If you do have a, a Bible or a, a device with Scripture there, you can turn to Luke chapter 12 where I can, I'll read it and you can uh, just listen along. It's an amazing picture of, of this. For context, and this point of Jesus' ministry, it's kind of height of popularity. Actually, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, says that there's thousands of people like trampling on each other trying to get near to Jesus. There's all these people kind of vying for this. His popularity and, and his opposition are both on the rise at this point in the gospel narratives. Religious leaders are opposing him. Some people love him, but everybody wanted to be around him. So Luke 12, 1 says there's so many thousands of people who had gathered together, they were trampling one another. And then there's this one guy in the midst of that context where everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants to have a word. Everybody wants to ask a question. Everybody wants to be near him. There's a guy who gets that audience. There's a guy who gets the opportunity. Listen to what he asks, verse 13. In the midst of that, in the midst of that, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? It makes me think of like the press room at the White House or something when everybody's kind of yelling at the same time and trying to get a question off. and every, There's all this like chaos and everything going on and then somebody gets pointed at and they're like, hey, can you help me? solve this family problem that I have. And this guy finally gets an audience with Jesus, and this is what he asks for? 
Jesus, would you settle this family financial squabble to my satisfaction? Listen to what Jesus says. So after he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Verse 14, but he said to, the, to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. When we have that one question we want to ask, and it's about uh, the, the uh, possessions of other people, or the stuff of other people, or the experience of other people, or the, 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 the families of other people, or the spouse of other people, or the bodies of other people. And we say, Jesus, would you just settle this for us and give me this thing that I'm coming? Jesus says, your life does not consist. Take care, be on a guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 16, and he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In this story that we have here, Jesus issues that warning to be on your guard against all covetousness for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells a story that's called the, the parable of the rich fool. This guy who's solely focused on stuff, making the point that life is not about your riches, but about you being rich toward God. Church, true life is not found in the stuff you desire, but in the God you desire. True life is not found in the possessions desired in your heart, but in the God who possesses your heart. We heard the same thing in our scripture reading from 1 Timothy 6, did we not? 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says, Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 19 of 1 Timothy 6, by this you may take hold of what is truly life. You want true life, you want abundant life, you want to live richly, has nothing to do with the stuff you have or the stuff you don't have. It's being rich toward God. The God who commands this is a God who wants to keep you from looking to stuff for life. He loves us that much. That's why he gives this commandment. That's the kind of God who would give this commandment. A God who says, guys, I know you're going to look in things for life and it's not found there. So I'm giving you this command to try to steer you in another direction. In a more helpful direction. Because life won't be found there. Truly rich, abundant life comes not from having your neighbor's stuff, but from being rich toward God. And in fact, the Bible speaks of our, the, the Christian life, of being saved, of becoming a Christian along those lines. Along those very same lines. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is, is that, that, that God indeed has riches for us, but they don't come through our coveting and our grasping for them, but through Christ. Christ, the, the anti-coveter. We don't have, and so we sinfully desire and we take what is someone else's, Jesus did have, and then willingly and humbly laid it all down so that we might become rich. 
That's the message of Christianity. That's the story of the gospel. It is, is a story of, of anti-coveting, of one who would lay down the riches of heaven to come and die on a cross that any of us, any of us coveters would, would, would turn and to look to him and find salvation in him and hope in him. That's the message of, of Christianity. That's the good news that we have. So what kind of a God would command such a thing of us? It's a God whose, whose presence is never failing. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He knows who you are, where you are, how you are, what you need, how to get it to you. He can do all that. And a God of abundance who richly supplies everything that we need. We need not look and grasp and covet and be jealous and envious. And all. No, no, he, he will give us all things. All right, secondly, what kind of people need this command? We, we see God and, and, and we see why he's praiseworthy and worshipful because of who he is and why he would even ask such a thing. What kind of a people would need this command? I think it's a dissatisfied people with a heart problem living in a world that's doing everything it is to, it can do to get you to covet. Great news. It's a dissatisfied people with a heart problem, living in a world that is doing everything it can to get us to covet. Let's consider that for a moment. God gives us this command to alert us to the danger in our hearts. Right? And, and you have to see the 10th commandment is a heart issue, right? The 10th commandment is, is unseen and it's everywhere. Think about it. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff isn't something you can really convict somebody of. You couldn't try somebody in court for coveting. Now, all the preceding commandments, all the things that we've seen so far in murder and adultery uh, and, and uh, false gods, all these things that, that we've seen so far in the Ten Commandments are things that we could, we could look at and we consider the, the, the evidence bearing false witness, theft, all those things. And we could look at the evidence and consider testimonies and determine whether or not someone was guilty of it. But this one, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. All sins begin in the heart and are issues of the heart, but coveting is completely a sin of the heart. It's a feeling, it's an attitude, it's an emotion, it's a thought. So it's internal. It's an internal thing and it's everywhere. So, so, so all that to say, we, we have a heart problem. It's not just that there's things that we need to stop doing, but there's something wrong with our hearts. There's something internal that, that's not even tangible that we can see and grasp and touch. But there's something in us that's broken. And it's everywhere. The 10th the commandment is, is actually the commandment that causes us to break all the other commandments. I've heard some people wonder if, if uh, the 10 commandments, as they were put together, didn't really have much of a, of a mind towards crescendo or climax. Because you have all these big hit, kind of heavy hitting sins with adultery and murder and all this kind of stuff. And you kind of go out with a whimper with like, hey, don't desire your neighbor's ox <laughs> on top of all of that but no that's not the case at all this is the most deadly and lethal that lies under uh, all the other ones especially in the second table of the ten commandments it's the one that causes us to break the other ten commandments right having other gods originates very often in a heart that wants things that god isn't providing so you diversify your divine portfolio not honoring the Sabbath often comes from a heart that wants what it doesn't have, and so I'm going to overwork and underworship to get that, because I want those things. Adultery begins with desiring, coveting someone who isn't your spouse. Stealing, obviously, coveting something you don't possess, and so on. We could go down the list. 
In fact, I wonder if in the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment is doing what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. We consider those in these, and in, in, uh, especially in the uh, murder and on the adultery commandments that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said uh, that you don't commit adultery. I say, don't even lust after somebody. You've heard it said that you should not murder, but I say, if you ever had anger in your heart, you're guilty of breaking that commandment. I wonder if the Tenth Commandment in the Ten Commandments itself is doing that exact thing. You see all these commandments of these things you shouldn't do, but listen, the tenth one is don't covet. That's actually going to be the, 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 the gateway sin that's going to lead to all these other ones. So who needs this command? People with a heart issue, and it's a dissatisfied people with a heart issue. Given everything that we've looked at so far, this is where it naturally leads us, doesn't it? If God commands this because he is unfailingly present and graciously and richly blesses us with truly abundant life, then we have to see that those of us who need this commanded to us to, to not covet is because there's something in us that even in the face of such benevolence, even in the face of such blessing, we still experience dissatisfaction. And we're all guilty of this regardless of our financial status in life and our financial station in life. The 1% uber rich who seemingly have everything will covet their neighbor's yacht because they got a newer model that's one foot longer. I grew up just south of, of Amish country in Pennsylvania. I was in West Virginia, just north of me. It was Amish country in Pennsylvania. And, and, and I would hear stories of my, my friends who, who lived there that, that would say, it, it even happens here. Somebody got a new carriage. Somebody got a new outfit. Somebody coveting somebody's spouse. Even people, the Amish, who have tried to renounce the worldly riches will still struggle with coveting. And then everybody in between on that spectrum so a coworker has a, a new gadget that you want, a new watch or a new phone or a new device. A friend has a nice yard and a house with decent square footage in this area. My goodness. You covet. A sibling has a better job making more money. Your friend from school seems to have a better marriage with more obedient kids. A peer gets a project or a client or a promotion or a rank or a status that you thought you should get. Others in your occupation are always getting opportunities for leadership and professional development or advancement that you should have had and been overlooked for. People in social media live in a better town and go on better vacations and have better parties and do better weekend activities. Again, in all of this, it's not desire that's the problem. It's inordinate desire. It's misplaced desire. It's desire gone awry. It's okay to want a house that we can entertain in and have a, a roof over our heads. But as we said at the beginning, it's when we see something that somebody else has, and we can't even be thankful for the fact that they have it, but we want it for ourselves. We start to covet what other people have. You may have noticed that coveting has cousins, greed, materialism, envy, and they conspire to get us uh, together to get us so preoccupied with everything of our neighbor that we become deoccupied with everything of God. John Piper, when he talks about the sin of coveting, says one of the ways that we can start to figure out if it's good desire or bad coveting and sinful coveting is, is what it makes us do with our desire for God. Are we desiring God more because of this desire that we have? Or are we desiring him less because of the desire that we have? 
We become preoccupied with stuff, deoccupied with God. We'll be tempted, all of us, toward covetousness, to be dissatisfied and discontent with ourselves and our people and our stuff. And friends, whenever we do that, what's happen- happening is, is, a, is a curdling, it's a souring of your soul. Who needs this command? A dissatisfied people with a heart problem, living in a world that is doing everything it can to get us to covet. You may be thinking of this already, but this is around us all the time. Advertisers are targeting you to get you to covet. And they're showing you not just an item, but they're showing you other people enjoying that item. So that you don't just want the thing, but you want the joy and the experience that comes that those people have. Entire industries are built around getting you to covet. TV shows and entire networks even are driving us toward experiences that we don't have, food that we don't have, homes that we don't have, relationships that we don't have, bodies that we don't have. Entire industries are built around this. Apps on our phones. Social media has algorithms built in targeting you. This is how insidious this is. You may have struggled with the temptation towards covetousness and and defeated it. Right? You're scrolling and you see some ad and you're like, huh, let me pause there for a second. No, no, I'm not going to do it. And you keep going. Guess what? They got you. Now they're going to give you more of that because you paused for a second. So even where you feel like you've been successful in getting around coveting, somebody's watching you and saying, I'm going to give you more of that stuff. You coveted for a second. I saw it. It was brief, but we saw it, we noted it, it's in the algorithm, we're going to give you more of that. Home buying apps won't leave you alone. Like, you don't buy a house and Zillow goes, hey, congratulations, we'll leave you alone now. Like, that's not the way it works. You bought a house, here's a better one. Oh, you looked in that zip code one time, here's five more houses in that zip code. Want what you don't have. Remember our triangular desire illustration from the very beginning? That was complex and scary for me to talk about. And that was one kid with one toy horse and another kid walks in the room. Imagine if other people start coming into that room, targeting that kid. And saying, let me show you all the toys you don't have that you should want. And let me show you all the people who are enjoying them. And uh, here's a phone. Give the kid a phone now download five apps willingly that are then going to show us all the kids in the world enjoying all the things. That's where we are. That's our situation. Our word here in the second question that we're asking and answering is the word confrontation. What kind of a people need this commanded? So I want us to rightly see that that this is present in our own lives. There's a reason Paul includes covetousness and lists of sins besides some really heavy hitters. Right, Ephesians chapter 5, verse uh, 3. Ephesians 5, verse 3, listen to this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. You hear that? Paul, Paul puts it up. We, we, we rightly revile against and safeguard against and seek accountability about and confess and all these things built around sexual immorality. Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 3, but sexual immorality and covetousness should not even be named among you. 
among you as is proper among the saints. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Mercy. We're all aware of the danger of sexual morality and impurity, but Paul puts covetousness on that same list twice. Covetousness is listed there besides sexual immoralities as in the list of sins that is not to be named among Christians, is improper for the church, that bars us from the kingdom of God, and that brings wrath from God on the sons of disobedience. If tolerated, the sin of coveting puts us at odds with God and his purposes, and it chokes out the word of God. Remember Jesus uh, told uh, in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower? There's a sower going along, and he's throwing seed. And one of the soil types that where the seed lands is the seed lands a, a, among thorns, and it, it, is, it is choked out, it says. The good seed was choked out by the cares of the world. Now, that could be many things. The, the cares of the world there in that parable could mean many things, but friends, it certainly involves coveting. I mean, how could it not? That seed lands on the soil and is choked out by the coveting that we have. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? All he ever coveted. What, what, what profits it a man if he gains everything he ever coveted? He gains the whole world but forfeits his soul. Well, we need help. Point number three. What does obedience to this command look like? What does obedience to this command look like? What kind of a God would command this of us? It's a God who's present and a God who is a God of abundance. What kind of a people needed? It's people with dissatisfied hearts who are surrounded by it all the time, attacked from every angle. Well, how do we chart a new way forward? How are we instructed here? Let me just start by saying the fact that it's unseen and intangible and heart-level sin doesn't mean we're helpless or without course of action. The New Testament authors at least didn't seem to think so. Colossians 3, Paul says to put covetousness to death. The author of Hebrews, we already looked at in Hebrews 13.5, says keep your life free from the love of money, so, so avoid it. Jesus said in Luke 12 to be on guard against covetousness. 1 Timothy 6 is filled with language of fleeing the sin and pursuing God. So there must be some things that we can do, even though it's this interior kind of heart level sin. I'm going to give you, now bear with me, I'm going to give you 12 things. 12 things. Uh, and and the, the idea here with giving you 12 things is, is not that you're going to apply all 12 of those, but because this sin is so subtle and so dangerous and so insidious, I'm just, I'm hoping that each of us would take three or four things that would be helpful for us where we are in our fight against this. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the first two, a little bit briefer on the others. Number one, start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. We rightly feel the weight. I don't know, by the time we got through those first two points, I, I kind of feel like Paul in Romans 7 when he says, who will save me from the body of this death? He says, thanks be 
to God, who through Christ offers us a way out. That's what we have here. Start with Jesus. We rightly feel the weight of this so that we know we have no choice but to be saved. Right? It's things like this. Paul in Romans as well says, I, I, the, the law actually awakened me to my sin. I wouldn't have known about covetousness if the law hadn't said, do not covet. And Paul points to this specific sin to show how the law draws that out of us. And I think that's exactly what it does. Anytime that we're considering these commandments and, and considering these confrontations that we have and the ways that we're disobedient and how, how deep and dark and unavoidable this is that's in our heart, we have to be led to the place that I can't clean up my life enough. I can't save myself. I'm helpless. I mean, I, we don't even have to consider any other commands or sins. Just give me coveting. And I'm like, God, I can't. What am I to do? I can't get out of this. I can't save myself. There's nothing that we can do. So it's commands like this that rightfully and helpfully remind us that we have no choice but to be saved because we can't save ourselves. Our efforts won't get us there. The sin in our hearts is too deep. It's too wicked. It's too subtle. What we need are new hearts. Not new plans of attack. Not new approaches. If, you are, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... We can't give you any tips and tricks. It's not reading the Bible. It's not coming to church. It's, it's not, I mean, those things are going to help us in our pursuit and our walk and learning about Jesus and knowing who he is. But what you need is to be born again. To be regenerated. To have the heart of stone taken out and to have a heart of flesh put in. That's how the Bible speaks of salvation. It's not being motivated. It's not doing good things. It's not having a martyr that we can look at and imitate. It's none of that. It's Jesus dying in our place for our sins and us turning from our sins and trusting in him. And the Bible says anybody who does that will be saved. That our hearts will be made new. We will be made new creations. The old gone, the new has come. And we do that by, by looking at Jesus, who again, I've said, is, is, uh, we look at a Savior who casted off all coveting. I mean, just think of, 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 of his entire life and ministry uh, among us, his incarnation. He, he could have grasped, Philippians says, but he didn't. He emptied himself. He took on humanity, becoming 100% God and 100% man. He did that, lowering himself, humbling himself, not coveting what was not his, but, but laying down his life to, and become, and be, uh, in his incarnation, becoming a man that he might save us. His ministry, his ministry begins in Matthew chapter 4 with Satan, the uh, Holy Spirit leading Jesus out into the wilderness where Satan tempted him with all kinds of coveting. And Jesus rejected that at every turn. Because he had a ministry to do. He was the sinless one. A life of no sin, of no coveting. His death. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Look out for yourself. Jesus casted that desire off as well, if that existed, that he, he couldn't do that because he had a mission to save his people. And so he went through that cruel death on the cross to save us. Currently, what's he doing now? He's interceding for us at the right hand of God. He holds us in his grip and he will never let us go. Focused on us and our salvation. His return even still focused on his people coming back for those who are redeemed. When we struggle with coveting and we see that in our hearts, friends, focus on Jesus. And remember that there is a way out. He doesn't call us to anything he doesn't also empower us for. 
And so he, by his spirit, can help us to fight, can help us to stand, can help us to live lives free from coveting. Here's number two. That was number one. Start with Jesus. Number two, reason with yourself. Reason with yourself. You need to reason with yourself. You need to speak truth to yourself. Don't listen to yourself, but speak truth to yourself. With coveting, there are so many lies that we believe. The grass is always greener on the other side, the saying goes. Things would be so much better if I had that person's spouse. Things would be so much better if I had that person's job. Things would be so much better if I had that person's life. Things would be so much better if I had that person's family. Things would be so much better if I had that person's town, their house. If I lived back in my hometown like my brother or my sister or my best friend, things would be different. Then I would truly be fulfilled like all my friends and family seem to be. But friends, reason with yourself. Speak truth to yourself. It's not true. Your friends covet just as much as you do. And some of them are coveting your life right now for the same reason you're coveting theirs. The rich covet the middle class because their life seems so much more simple and less complex. The person in your quaint, calm hometown covets your life in the city that seems more exciting and adventurous than theirs. The person in that less transient church is dissatisfied with the same people year after year and covets the constant influx of friend options that you lament. The person with that high-demand job would quickly trade places with the person who has less stress and less responsibility and less employees to oversee. It's a lie that joy is to be found elsewhere in someone else's station. There's a great book on this I read a number of years ago uh, called The Trouble with Paris by a, a, a pastor named Mark Sayers. And the subtitle of the book, The Trouble with Paris, is this, Following Jesus in a World of Plastic Promises. The Trouble with Paris, Following Jesus in a World of Plastic Promises. The title of the book comes from a, a dinner party that Mark Sayers was at one evening. He found himself in a conversation with a young woman who was relocating to Paris. And as he dug in in that conversation with her, he, he found out that, that the reason that she was going to Paris is because uh, she shared with him that, that despite her good job and her great friends, she just feels unhappy. She feels, she feels sad. She feels depressed. And, and he is a pastor. He says, as, as I'm listening to her and some of the things she's describing about her life and some of the things that are going on in her, in her family, he's like, I'm, I already see like, why she's so unhappy. But she says, I just think if I can get to Paris, everything will be different. And he said it was no surprise then when he got another email from her a number of months later that she was now in Ireland. Paris wasn't all it was cracked up to be. She was still there. The trouble with Paris. Mark Sayers writes, her story was typical of coming, in, uh, coming of age in a time where we are told to find meaning through accumulating experiences. What Sayers is addressing is something the 20th century philosopher Jean Baudrillard, there's another French, I'm just, I'm just full of French uh, sociologists this morning, uh, but this uh, guy Baudrillard called, uh, coined this word called hyper-reality. Hyper-reality, and this is kind of the, forms the backbone of what Sayers is arguing in The Trouble with Paris. And I'm taking a moment on this because conceptually I think it's really critical for us, it's been helpful for me. Baudrillard's hyper-reality is the observation that we're stuck chasing an image of a thing that's better than the thing itself. It's not reality, it's hyper-reality. 
And we're stuck in the cycle of, of chasing a thing that's better than the thing itself, which means we'll never get it because it doesn't exist. Sayers gives a couple, in case that's a little bit of a fuzzy concept, Sayers gives a couple of illustrations of hyper-reality in our everyday life. Listen to these. Here's the first one. A pretty girl takes a job as a model to pay for her schooling, and the photographer uses lighting and wardrobe and makeup and computers to take away any imperfection and improve her overall look. The magazine hits newsstands, and through the magic of technology, a pretty girl has become a cover model. Thousands of women buy it and wonder why they cannot be as beautiful or as glamorous as the model on the cover, not realizing that if they walk past the actual model on the street, they wouldn't even notice her. Second example. A man walks past a billboard on his way to work every day that advertises a vacation on an idyllic island in Southeast Asia. As he's at his stressful job, he fantasizes about relaxing on those white beaches under the palm trees of the beautiful paradise on the billboard. So he buys a two-week vacation on the island. But upon arrival, he discovers that for most of the year it rains. He tries swimming in the ocean, but it's nothing but coral that cuts his feet and it's infested with jellyfish. The beach is covered with malaria-carrying mosquitoes, and so he spends most of his vacation in his room watching TV. Number three, a group of friends share an apartment. Each week they watch a TV show about a group of friends that share an apartment as well. <laughs> as they watch, each person wonders why they cannot be as close or as happy as the characters on the show, not realizing that in real life the cast of characters can't stand each other. Sayers gives these as current examples of Audre Lorde's hyper-reality. Our world of hyper-reality gives us a world of symbols that are detached from the reality that they're supposed to be symbolizing. And they appear as more attractive than the objects that they're representing. The clear message is that, is that if we are to have lives of worth, if we are to li have lives of happiness, if we are to have lives of well-being, then we need to move our lives into the hyper-real world where we chase experiences and things that have been portrayed, but try as we might, it's impossible because those things never existed in the first place. I think that is so helpful when we talk about coveting. That lies behind the struggle that we have. We're chasing a fantasy. It's a fool's errand. So friends, start with Jesus, but then reason with yourself. And all of our coveting, the lies that lie behind it. Number three is enjoy. Enjoy. First Timothy 6 said, set your hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Again, our, the, the, the answer to this isn't a kind of a Buddhistic casting off of all desires. That's not the answer here. That's not where our hope is to be found. God has given us things to enjoy. So becoming a stoic or a hermit or, you know, uh, going in this other direction of desires are bad, that's not the answer. Because what we need to do is, is to fight fire with fire, to fight inordinate desires with greater desires. And part of that is God has given us good things to enjoy by his common grace. Enjoy the things that God has given us. Number four, give. Give. Hebrews 13, 5, again, we've, I've mentioned it a couple times, keep your life free from the love of money. 1 Timothy 6 says, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. I won't spend too much time on this. We actually talked about this in our, our sermon on, on the command to, to do not steal. 
But one of the antidotes to stealing and to theft is, is generosity, to give, right? You send your money ahead of your heart. Not just where your heart is, your money will follow, but, but where your money is, your heart will follow. I think the same thing is true of our coveting, that if we are generous to give and to, and to, to open up our homes and to be free with what we have and generous with what we have, that's one of the weapons with which we can fight against coveting. Number five, express thankfulness. Express thankfulness. In the Ephesians 5 passage that we looked at earlier, Paul said to not let covetousness be named, but rather let there be thanksgiving. Ephesians 5 verse 4. Let there be thanksgiving. Paul sees thanksgiving as somehow as an antidote to this coveting that we have. And I think the reason is because our expressing of thankfulness for what God has given and enjoying it cuts at the root of our coveting. The more we're thankful. That's why we pray before we eat. We're not praying for the food, right? Christians love to be like, man, Lord, take this double bacon cheeseburger and make it a plate of broccoli in my stomach somehow. We're not praying for the food to be something it's not. What we're doing is we're expressing thankfulness. We're like, God, thank you for giving this. Thank you for providing it. And we often do that with our meals. But but Christians, we should do that with all of our stuff, with everything that God has given us. To express thankfulness, and that cuts against the coveting that we see that, God, thank you for this family. Thank you for this life. Thank you for this home. Thank you for this job. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this town. Thank you for the, 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 the reasons you put me exactly where I am with what I have. I'm thankful for what you've given me. And I think that practice of that is, is doing that even when you don't feel it. <laughs> There's going to be times we don't feel it. But that expressing that thankfulness can shift how our hearts are experiencing it and responding. Number six, rejoice. This is similar to thankfulness, but rejoice. Thinking here specifically of, of again, rejoice. You can't make yourself feel something, but you can do things. You can, the, the prayers you utter, the, the, uh, uh, there, there's ways that we can rejoice in what other people have. So instead of being tempted to, to covet what somebody else has or an experience or something to be celebrated, just celebrate that thing with them. Send them a text, shoot them an email, express thankfulness and gratefulness and rejoicing for what God has given to other people, even if you don't have it. That's what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what we're called on to do as a church. Is what we've agreed to do together as a church. It's good sportsmanship that we teach our kids. Coach a number of sports teams, and after a difficult loss... <laughs> I'm often getting written in the face of my kids, and I'm saying, high five, only kind words. Like, that's what I say to them. Because I've had some kids that are, you know, kind of elbowing a little bit or saying, like, no, 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 not my kids, not my kids, personally. Uh, kids that I coach. Uh, and, and so just reminding them, hey, good sportsmanship. Say good, say good luck in the next round. Say congratulations. That's what we're doing. We're expressing. And that, that cuts. That's why good sportsmanship is a thing that we all need to learn. It cuts at the coveting of what we don't have. So rejoicing with others, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Number seven, protect yourself. Protect yourself. Luke 12, Jesus says, be on guard against all covetousness. Friends, there may be social media apps you need to delete. We'll often talk about that with the issue of sexual immorality. Paul put covetousness on the very same line twice in Scripture. So if that house buying app is causing you to covet other people's homes, get rid of it. If Instagram is causing you to, to covet other people's bodies and lives and experiences, get rid of it. Get rid of TikTok anyway because there's other reasons, things that are going on. Anyway. 
But we need to protect ourselves against those things. Unfollow people, delete things, avoid. Number eight, thoughtfully engage. Thoughtfully engage. I think it's just helpful to, to, to be open and talk about how you're being targeted. So with your kids, you're watching TV and, a, and an ad comes on. Feel free to hit pause and say, notice what they were trying to do in that ad. Did you catch it? They're coming at you. They're saying you can't be a happy kid if you don't have that toy. They're saying you can't be a fulfilled person if you don't have this experience. So, so just pause and interact. Don't, don't, just, don't just receive and become mindless, numbed, receiving everything that comes your way. But thoughtfully engage in the media and the movies and the TV and the advertising. Talk, recognize and, and be vocal about how we're being sold a bill of goods. You're a target. You're a walking dollar sign. Be honest about that. Have that be a part of your conversation that will help us to fight. Number nine, fight for contentment. Fight for contentment. First Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Friends, fight for contentment. Read books about contentment. A number of people in our church have read uh, old Puritan paperback uh, by Jeremiah Burroughs. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, a great book to read. Read about contentment, talk about contentment, fight for it. Paul, Paul we, we looked at this in a sermon a couple weeks ago that Paul says he's learned the secret in Philippians uh, chapter 4. He's learned the secret of having a lot and having a little, of, of being in want and, and, uh, and having an abundance. He says the, the secret to that is that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Fight for contentment. Confess it when you don't see it in your life. Be honest and open with friends in your lives. Hey, friend, listen, this is how I'm coveting right now. This is, how I'm, this is where I'm most often tempted to that. Talk about it in your fellowship groups. Be honest about it. Look for it. Confess it. What things are you being tempted by? Look for accountability. Number 10, repent. Repent. There's always repenting that needs to happen when it comes to our covetousness. Because as, as Paul says, both in Ephesians and in Colossians, Coveting is idolatry. It is idolatry, he says. It's a sign that we've taken something good and we've made it God. We've taken a gift and we've elevate, elevated it to a place of supremacy. And what will give us ultimate meaning and ultimate happiness and ultimate joy in our lives. We dethrone God, becoming preoccupied with things and deoccupied with him. So we must do heart-level work to investigate exactly what it is that we're disbelieving about God. Where am I distrusting him? Where am I lacking faith for what he would give me and the timing with which he'll give it to me? Or the fact that he might give it, not give it to me at all, but he is enough. Where am I distrusting God? Where is this an issue of faith for me? Where is this an issue of lack of trust for me? How have I made an idol out of this thing that I crave so badly? And then let that discovery and that path that you go on lead you to a place of repentance and of turning back to God and saying, oh God, I've, I've, I've made this thing an idol. Help me to turn from this. Help me to seek you. Number 11, endure. Endure. I, this is hard work. <laughs> this is deep, it's dark, it's everywhere, it's inner. I mean, it, it is, uh, I hope you see it, I'm sure you see it, I see it, I feel it, even while I'm preaching it. It is hard work. It is exhausting. Doesn't it sound exhausting? To fight this well, it's not as exhausting as being a coveter. We have to endure 
in our fight and our struggle against this sin. It's a long road. That's why we have the power of the Spirit in us. That's why we have the church to help us to do this well and to walk with one another as we follow the Lord. Number 12, covet. Covet. Somebody threw something. Covet. One of, this is one of Thomas Watson's applications, a Puritan commentator. Have a, he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. One of his applications on battling covetousness was this, covet heavenly things. Remember, they, they, it's the same word for desire. It's the exact same word, covet heavenly things. Have a kingdom-mindedness and a heavenly focus that will draw your affections toward proper loves. Store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. Invest in heavenly things. Invest in eternal things. Covet the right things. That's only how the axe is going to be laid at the root of our covetousness. The joyful Christian life is not found in the things we possess, but in the God who possesses us. Friends, let's pray for strength and his help in living that out. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do ask for your aid in this. I do feel like Paul in Romans 7, a little bit in despair, just considering this on its face of how difficult this is and how pervasive this is. But God, thank you that in your kindness and in your wisdom, you've commanded us regarding this. Not just in the Ten Commandments, but in so many places we see even in the New Testament. You see Jesus modeling this. You see Jesus telling stories about this. You see the apostles writing about this. This is a deep, dark sin that infects and plagues all of us, but you have not left us without help. I pray even now as we turn to the Lord's table and see these elements before us of the bread representing the body of Christ and the cup representing the blood of Christ, that we would be reminded that he died for coveters like us, casting off all covetousness that we might turn and find hope and life in him, abundant life, rich life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.